Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, February 28th, 2023. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Washington commentary columnist Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Matt and Christine are both uh, senior fellows at the American Enterprise Institute, and they are here with us today. And every day to discuss the depredations of the Biden administration. A really remarkable story in the New York Times that broke yesterday afternoon about uh, the Biden administration's effort to shoehorn legislative policy that it could not get at the uh, congressional level uh, over the last two years into the CHIPS Act, which is the the bill uh, that uh, is an effort to... Uh, incept or grow the uh, domestic semiconductor industry with massive government subsidies. And apparently those subsidies, Matt, are going to have a lot of strings attached that were not envisioned in the original legislation or the legislation, not original, that actually passed the House and Senate was signed by the president. Right. Uh, The story in the New York Times today, John, uh, by uh, Jim Tankersley and Anna Swanson begins uh, semiconductor manufacturers seeking a slice of nearly $40 billion in new federal subsidies will need to ensure affordable child care for their workers, limit stock buybacks, and share certain excess profits with the government. Uh, the new requirements uh, they go on represent an aggressive attempt by the federal government to bend the behavior of corporate America to accomplish its economic and national security objectives uh, Gina Raimondo, the uh, much beloved by the media Secretary of Commerce, said in an interview with the New York Times that the financial rules would encourage companies to ask only for funding they really need and prevent them from diverting taxpayer dollars to pad the pockets of their shareholders. We don't want to spend a dollar more than necessary to make these projects happen, Raimondo said. Um, and she also said elsewhere, uh, she's not, she's not going to give a blank check, which if, apparently that's the phrase in uh, that's au courant in Washington these days. You don't want to give a blank check to Ukraine. You don't want to give a blank check to chips manufacturers. Um, the rules on chip requirements, the New York times reports come on top of other requirements written into law, including a ban on certain new investments in China. What we have here, and this is me editorializing now is a huge, um, flex uh, of the muscles of government in order not only to promote the chip sector, which was, uh, I think, what Congress understood itself to be doing, or at least the many Republicans who voted for this legislation understood uh, their actions uh, to mean, uh, but to, to uh, legislate social uh, social policy through administrative action. Um, and it's sure to be controversial. But to, to me, though, uh, when I look back at the debate over the CHIPS Act last summer, it does seem to be something of a kind of a hinge point, John. Um, that's the beginning of when Republicans started feeling a little bit uneasy about uh, the election. Um, if you recall, it, it, they voted for this CHIPS Act, this huge subsidy to the uh, domestic semiconductor industry. And at the they did it on the premise that Senator Manchin of West Virginia would not support the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. And yet, within hours, 
of the Chips Act passing, uh, Manchin basically double-crossed Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell and said he would vote for the Inflation Reduction Act uh, and much more government spending um, and tax increases uh, than uh, he had suggested he had wanted to do in the past. And I think that led to a demoralization among the Republicans and also exposed the dangers of Republicans when they lose the conservative part of conservative populism. Right. If conservative populism is populism directed toward the ends of limiting government and promoting self-government and constitutional rule of law, I think that makes for a successful synthesis. But when it's just populism in terms of providing government favors to your constituencies or to your social projects, um, you risk not only losing principle, uh, but also losing in policy. And that's clearly what will happen here. If the, if the Biden administration is successful with its plans. It also undermines what I think the, the the chip market, this whole battle between mainly between the U.S. and China is really fascinating. There, there's an awesome book, if anybody wants to read more about it, by Chris Miller called Chip Wars, which is I highly recommend. But one of the things that we need to understand is that there is a real national security issue at play here. There's there's, you know, China imports more chips than it imports oil. It, you know, there's this battle going on for sort of supremacy in a market that that's very, very important to how our economy works, how the global economy functions. So setting that against here's a pet Democratic Party issue that we cannot actually get past legislatively that we're going to stuff into this important bill because we we couldn't get it our way before. This is similar. It reminds me a lot of of Biden's student loan program. All the times when the peop- the elected representatives of the people have said, we cannot come to agreement on this. It's not happening. And the executive says, you know what, we're going to do it anyway, even though it's not really what the Constitution uh, says we should do. You know, We don't actually have the power to, but we're going to throw this out there and then we'll, you'll have to take us to court to get us to well, stop. That's crazy. I think we should delineate what it is, what social policy is being made uh, in the writing or promulgation of these uh, regulations. Uh, just to give people a sense. So Matt mentioned the stock the stock buyback. Stock buybacks. Okay, so stock buybacks are a complicated issue, and I don't really, I can't really, you know, understand. I, I'm not the person to go to to sort of describe the complexities of of stock buybacks. But one thing that I do know about stock buybacks that would be a contributor to the value of the CHIPS Act or the efforts that are being made by the CHIPS Act to uh, boost the American semiconductor industry is that they give the companies that engage in them more runway to do things in the long term because it means that they ha- they can focus less on the immediacy of the stock price and having to return value to shareholders as they reduce the role of shareholders in the ownership of the company. This is something that a lot of people say is a good thing because you want corporations, particularly if they're engaged in long-term efforts, to shift the balance of an entire industry from uh you know being an importing you know industry into the United States to making the United States a net exporter this is going to take a decade or more and you want companies to have more flexibility to make policies that 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 stretch over the long term the bernie sanders wing of the democratic party does not like stock buybacks because they see them in the classic way that people like that have absolutely no interest in how companies actually function or how incentives work 
in the capitalist system see them as simply payoffs to rich stockholders. Although not, those stockholders may not be rich, they could be pensioned. They could be the California Pension Fund, which I think is the largest single shareholder in the U.S. stock market. You know, stuff like that. Like, okay, Abe, sorry. Yeah, no, it's it's before we get to the particulars on the social engineering aspect of this, which are which are huge. Um, just in addition to to what you said, John, the whole approach here is topsy-turvy. When, when you want innovation and uh, in, a, in a particular industry and you want that industry to thrive, um, you roll back regulations, you free up uh, uh, people's ability to, to do things, and you make sure that the profit motive is there. Here, right. they're talking about sharing unforeseen profits with the government. I mean, you're going to dampen the profit motive. And it's here. already a profitable industry. Yeah, yeah right. this yeah. is not an industry that's flailing. Yeah. <laughs> it's By a the very way, all profitable that industry. means we should, because uh, again, so it's a very important thing. So there's essentially, you know, what used to be called a windfall profits tax that they're going to attempt to, uh, to, you know, create here. By the way, again, probably unconstitutionally, like I don't believe that the uh, executive branch can, um, impose a tax on people. That is something that the legislative branch has to do. Uh, the power of taxation is the power of the purse is, is, is in the hands of, of the Congress and not of the, uh, you know, not of the president or his proxies. But uh, the point about the windfall profits tax is um, why exactly is it that the government should get that money? What 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 is the idea? So there's excess profits that the government will collect them, and then use them for what purpose? What is a is there any such thing as a windfall profit? Windfall profit was used as a term in the late '70s to talk about how oil companies were making unexpected money because of the oil embargo. And that this was unfair, and Jimmy Carter said there should be a windfall profits tax. But if you and and that has come up, you know, time and again, whenever there are shortages and prices rise, as as prices do when you have what's called a market, scarcity makes things more expensive, and liberal economists don't like that, and therefore want to somehow intercede. But why the government should be the collector of those profits but is never. Right. It's never but, explained, except it's not fair. And the government is the people in some Rousseauvian sense, and therefore it will suck up these excess well, dollars. These, well, these are grants, not loans. It's important to make that distinction. So the, the government is giving grants to try to encourage these companies to maximize their production, right? So that we win this competition for for to be the place where chips come from. That that You can argue with that as a matter of how the government should spend its money. But the idea that they should then draw back some of the profits is, I think, a way to, to answer the Elizabeth Warrens and Bernie Sanders of their own party. Say, oh, look, 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 we're not going to let any rich people get richer from this. this we're going to throw money at this and no no bad profiting will happen. It's it's just so transparently it, ideological. Just, you know, just to put a point on it, the whole reason industries move overseas to begin with is because domestic policies make it hard they they, they cut into the the, the potential profits the, and they leave money on the table you know it's funny uh, when you look at these proposals the model uh seems more like a bailout than a 
innovation, promotion, research and development scheme. Uh, when I hear, well, we're going to take back some of the profits and you can't use the money in the grant to buy back stock. And uh, by the way, if you take this money, you're also going to have to provide daycare for your single mom uh, factory employees. Uh, that reminds me of the bank bail, bank bailouts, the TARP. Um, but the TARP was an emer- piece of emergency legislation meant to keep the financial sector afloat. So the money market mutual funds didn't break the bank in America collapse into poverty, you know, and the global financial system meltdown. That is not the situation here. And I, re, you know, back at, when we were debating the TARP in the aftermath uh, in the middle of the Great Recession, I was one of those conservatives who said, well, look, if the banks are taking this money, then, uh, and and if AIG, the insurance giant, is taking the money, then they shouldn't be awarding these huge bonuses to the CEOs. They failed, right? I mean, um, Right. But this is completely different. This is the, the intent of this legislation as it was, um, uh, at least as it was understood by the Republicans who voted for it. And this is why I think it's the political problem for that. By my count, 13 Senate Republicans who voted for the legislation. It was to give America an edge in the national security competition with China by promoting our domestic semiconductor industry. And just for background, the domestic semiconductor industry was created in the United States of America, but for a variety of reasons, including the regulations and the taxes and the lack of a skilled labor force, has my, very important parts of it have migrated to our allies, mainly Taiwan, uh, but also uh, the Netherlands and um, some parts of Europe and some parts of uh, Southeast Asia. And so the idea is, well, in order to hedge against Chinese expansion, uh, and of course, China and Japan and Korea are also um, big parts of the uh, chip network, uh, we need to promote high-level chip manufacturing here at home. All right. So that's why these Republicans voted for it. What they're finding out now is, in fact, they voted for an industrial policy um, kind of... uh, revanchist social policy uh, under the guise of innovation and and research. And I think it's going to lead to a lot of regrets because the model should be as exactly what Abe says. You should be having prizes. Okay. Who can create the, the, the next level chip or um, incentives. Like you have governors give big business incentive packages to, to have factories migrate to their state instead is, Oh, by the way, we'll, we'll give you the money. But that daycare facility better be tip top shape. Well, that can, yeah, that okay. I got to jump in on the on yeah. the iatrogenic effects of this of this demand for affordable childcare. The whole yeah. reason they need to put that in there is that overregulation of the childcare industry is why it's so overpriced right now. I mean, if you look at states like California in particular, the number of regulations required for people who are watching very young children, they have to get like twelve post secondary credits and child development. I mean, this overregulation and licensing these sort of restrictive or very burdensome licensing requirements for people who just love to take care of children. I have some personal experience with this. I have a friend who started a daycare agency in Maryland. And even there, it was just the the burdensome regulation drives people out of a market that then drives up costs for everyone else because there are fewer people willing to take those risks. Okay. We should also talk about this in this respect, which is so when you read uh, Gina Raimondo's explanation for why it is that this bill, which is about 
you know, uh, growing the U.S., the domestic U.S. semiconductor industry must contain within it anybody, any company that gets more than $150 million in these grants, uh, you know, the total of $40 billion, uh, has to have a functioning daycare center either on or near its premises. Why is that part of this effort? Because we really need women to work in this semiconductor industry, according to Gina Raimondo, and we need to make it easier for women to work in the semiconductor industry where apparently only 30% of the workforce is female. Now, I hate to put it this way because it sounds heartless, but what business is it of the federal government? What percentage of the workforce in a semiconductor factory is female? It is if your goal, as Abe says, is to is to launch or relaunch or strengthen or boost the semiconductor industry. You let the semiconductor industry figure out what its best workforce is. And there is a remarkable piece that Matt flagged to us a couple, maybe last week, I'm sorry, by Alex Burns in Politico, uh, the pretty fiery and fascinating 91-year-old head of Taiwan's largest semiconductor business, uh, whose name I can't uh, remember. Morris Chang. Morris Chang. Who is an American. Uh, Who's an American. And he met met, um, met, uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, and basically said, you people are ridiculous. Sure. $50 $50 billion, that's a start. Do you understand what goes into how you make semiconductors? Well, first of all, you've got to somehow acquire and maintain a supply chain of, um, I'm forgetting now the term, you know, I think keep thinking essential oils, but it's not essential oils. You know, it, a certain type of mined mineral. Rare, rare earth? Rare earth, thank you. <laughs> Essential oils. <laughs> well, essential oils. I'm I sure am so are very sorry. important. Anyway, anyway, but you know, you have to you have to find mines for them and mine them and then bring them up and then you and this is an highly highly trained. This is not an assembly line where you take eighteen year olds and put them on an assembly line. This is unbelievably complicated, miniaturized work to make these semiconductors and. What uh, so so the Congress that you guys are just throwing fifty billion dollars at it? This is a five hundred billion dollar effort if you're going to do it this way. That's not how you. This is not how you do it. And instead of sort of focusing on the purpose of the act, which is to get this stuff up and running at a level that it was, so that the Chinese are not in a position if we get ourselves into a really serious international crisis of breaking our supply chain, you know, uh, and, and, and collapsing our supply chain for these, you know, there are, I don't know what there are like 300 chips now in every single car made in the United States, which is one of the reasons that car manufacturer, there was a disruption in the supply chain and we had a car manufacturer crisis for about 12 months, uh, as a result of the pandemic. That's not what's of interest to Gina Raimondo, apparently. What's of interest is what can we shoehorn in here that Congress did not anticipate or make a feature of these bills 
that we can force on these companies so that we can then go back to our constituents and everybody and say, we got jobs for women. We're making sure there aren't windfall profits. We're doing this. We're doing that. It's stunning. I think there's probably constitutional issues involved once it actually gets up and running, although someone's going to have to show harm, whatever. Anyway, Matt, you... Uh... Well, I think one lesson from um, the Chip the Chip War book uh, that Christine mentions by uh, our colleague at AI, Chris Miller, which is essential reading, is that it's very hard to create a domestic uh, semiconductor industry. And um, it, it's very hard to understand what's next in in uh, in the technology um the industry was created in the united states in silicon valley um uh, texas instruments it was it was helped by government for sure typically defense applications right uh and our uh our competition with the soviet union in, in terms of space and and weapons um but the soviets were always trying to copy us and they were trying to have their own domestic chip industry. It never worked. And of course, the top-down command and control system never worked. Morris Chang was, uh, I believe, denied a promotion at Texas Instruments. Uh, and so he felt that he could only um, go elsewhere to create the type of chips he wanted to and to revolutionize industry in the way he did. Um, American citizen, but of Chinese origin, and he uh, went to Taiwan and he said, look, this is all the things you're going to have to do to create TSMC, the Taiwan uh, uh, semiconductor manufacturer. And they did it. And what's happened, and the same thing happened in Japan and the same thing happened in uh, South Korea. And those economies are just very different than the American economy. Um, their politics of those societies is very different than American politics. Um, they tend to be uh, dominated by one party. I mean, not so much anymore, but when these industries were kind of uh, seated. Uh, they were uh, semi-authoritarian in South Korea and Taiwan. Um, the LDP party has ruled Japan since the war, right? <laughs> and they make these collective decisions and they are very good at like follow through, right? With the, the, the idea that here's the objective, we're going to create this industry, we're going to base it here, and we're not going to be distracted by the sorts of things that America with our uh, rambunctious um, individualistic, uh, yes, individualistic, contentious democracy easily gets caught up in. And it, for us to try to move to, oh, all of a sudden we're going to be the South Korea or we're going to be Japan and their ministry of technology um, and industry, MIDI, is kind of uh, an apples to orange comparison. Because when we try to do it, inevitably, we get sucked into things like this, where it's like, well, well, okay, it's nice for you to build that fab, but uh, really, you know, how many building blocks do the kids have in the daycare, you know, and are the carpets yeah. thick? They better be not, thick enough. Yeah. Well, it, it's not just, it, it, it's not even just that we, we we get bogged down in those details. The tone here, if you, if you, you know, read what, what Gina Raimondo's saying here, there's something unmistakably punitive and finger wagging about this. It's not encouraging. It's 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 like you bad people have kept women out of this for too long, and we're here to stop you. Yeah. Well, you know, another important point. Then we should move on. 
in relation to your analysis of America versus these, you know, these um, what were then, you know, the, the tigers. Yeah, the Asian yeah, the tigers. tigers is that um, we looked at them and we have said, particularly about Japan or said about Japan before it went into its 30 year kind of, uh, you know, sloth of despond uh, is that um, they're subsidizing all their industries. So they, they, you know, they they have a they have an unfair leg up because they're subsidizing their industries. They're 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 doing this. They're undercutting us on, in terms of cost when they make things. They're, you know, they're allowing these things to run, you know, uh, at a loss in order to do this. But that's a misunderstanding, not in Japan's case, but in the Tigers' case, it's a misunderstanding of what they do because what they do is essentially do what Abe is talking about, which is, okay, you're going to come and you're going to do this. Go do it. Like we are not standing in your way. We're not going to tax you. We're not go. We, we may even, you know. And then there are, you know, bad things we would think of as bad. We're going to turn a blind eye to who's working in your factory, what the what the you know what the safety conditions are in your factory, whatever. We have a goal. The goal is to create this major export business, and everything that we're going to do here in terms of dealing with you is to help you is to further that goal as a private industry, because it has vast public good consequences for us as a country. And that's essentially what we're talking about here in the United States. We have a great difficulty with this, particularly at the federal level, but we don't at the state level. Like, what? What? How do states compete with one another? They compete with one another by either cutting regs, or by providing certain types of grants and subsidies to specific industries. My my favorite being uh, Georgia, Atlanta, suddenly becoming the second Hollywood because if you make a movie in Georgia, Georgia will cut you a check. Georgia pays movie companies. Uh, based on the size of their budget and how much money they're spending movie by movie in Atlanta, in and or around Atlanta. And you know what? It worked brilliantly. Marvel well, movies it, are all made in Atlanta. So and it I'm created saying, a whole industry of yeah. people who now live and pay taxes in right. the state of Georgia because right. they okay. serve I, that industry. I find some of that stuff very, you know, it's sort of like stadium. It's the stuff that, you know, really annoys people about how this works. But there is competition inside the United States for United States business resources, things like that, that, that uh, gives our capitalists a leg up and a way to make sure that governments state governments don't come around and start you know doing things that are either extortionate or making it harder for them to make a profit but only but this is not true at the federal level which has no such interest and has no and only wants when they get involved to figure out ways to get these companies to do things that they that they want them to do. But you hit it uh, on the head, John, when you said, what is the goal, right? Yeah. With Japan, the Asian Tigers, the goal is we're going to create an export industry here. We're going to have the most advanced technology and we will let you do pretty much anything and we will help you in order to achieve that goal. Well, the goal is contested in the United States. If you ask me, I was sympathetic to the CHIPS Act because I think we need to have a leg up against China in this uh, long competition against them, right? But that's not Nancy Pelosi's goal. 
That's not Gina Raimondo's goal. Their goal clearly is to get more women in STEM, right. which they've been trying to do for decades. And how about to, this? To very little effect. So the New Yorker has an editorial this week by Evan Osnos, longtime China watcher, which is to say somebody who spent 20 years sucking up to China and his writing. And then, you know, around 2015, started realizing he needed to hedge his bets. And he says, look, China's too dead. Of course, we the human rights, it's terrible and all of this and balloons and whatever. But we need a policy like detente. We need to find a way to live with China because they're too dangerous and we don't need a new Cold War and all that. Well, what was detente? Detente was Russia wants to compete with us economically. We should let them. It was a stage in a Cold War. (laughs) Right. But the detente policy was a policy about allowing Russia into the world economic system to the extent possible. That was what we were offering them in order to help moderate their behavior. It wasn't just arms control. And it wasn't this and it wasn't that. It was like, treat them like they're a partner, all of this. And this is exactly the reverse situation that we find ourselves in with China. China is an economic powerhouse, but it is not a military or geopolitical powerhouse yet. And if our perp, if if you have a different, if you have Nancy Pelosi wanting to, you know, they want to spend money to create a domestic semiconductor industry, so they have some bragging rights on it. But if you have another part of their ideological wing or their sort of headspace wing saying, "Look, we're getting into dangerous waters here. We need to find a way to live with China." Um, what you're doing there is you're going to say that the last thing you're going to do is focus on China's threat to the semiconductor supply chain because that's belligerent and hostile. And then we're going to have a hostile relationship with them and we need to have a working relationship with them. So you have, on the one hand, the use of foreign policy to boost domestic you know, desires for having a government imposed child imposed childcare uh, regulations on you know, on, on on industries, and then you have on the other side people who are saying, "Don't we we what we're doing here is a mistake because we need to, you know, we need to we need to live with China because things are just getting too hairy." Well, great. So we're going to spend forty billion dollars not helping the semiconductor industry boost its, you know, uh, domestically because you know we're going to spend most of that money on other things or a lot of that money on other things. And we're not going to confront China. So that's a as 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 Morris Chang said, essentially taking thirty billion, you know, fifty billion dollars and throwing it down the garbage can, throwing it in the garbage can. And again, I don't know what to to what degree this stuff will be, you know, challenged on separation of powers. But it's just another version of pen and phone. Just another version of saying, I don't like what Congress is providing me, so I'm just going to unilaterally impose it as as an executive and uh and i i hope there is some ability or capacity or that the house which is now of course in republican control that the house can respond to this story in the new york times uh particularly mike gallagher's china committee with some real thoughts about what on earth the commerce department is doing here now let me just take a break and talk to you about our 
friend Dan Senor and his Call Me Back podcast, if we're talking about foreign policy and the threats over the next decade and longer, his last two podcasts are must-listens because they are uh, they offer competing uh, visions of what is going to go on over the next decade. The first is Neil Ferguson, the great historian at Stanford and author of this multi-volume biography of Kissinger, a book about, you know, uh, uh, prophecies of do- like he's a remarkable uh, person and uh, Dan uh, th- this was his podcast last week and um, Ferguson is I would say about as pessimistic as you can be about where the West is in its struggle uh, particularly with China and how we are just morally emotionally and ideologically uh, incapable it appears to him of being serious about this threat and figuring out ways to counter it. And then this week he's got Roger Fontaine, who is the head of the, um, uh, of, uh, CNAS, uh, Fontaine, excuse me. Did I say Roger Fontaine? Somebody I worked with. Roger Fontaine sounds like a very distinguished actor. No, I'm sorry. Roger Fontaine. It literally was a foreign policy guy from the eighties. This is Richard Fontaine, who is the head of the center for a new American security and uh, was, you know, long time Hill staffer, John McCain and others. And, um, and he is offering a much more uh, balanced and optimistic appraisal of America's ability to forge, to, uh, to ford the storm and, uh, and, and find a way through, uh, the challenges that face us. So that's Dan Senor's Call Me Back podcast. Last week, Neil Ferguson. This week, uh, Richard Fontaine. Um, give a listen. It's great. It's like uh, the most illuminating uh, podcast on these issues that that I know about. So that's Call Me Back at Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your fine podcast. Uh, Abe Greenwald, uh, you did a piece uh, for our website, blog post. Um, people can find uh, called... Uh, they were better the kid, off in cages. The kids were safer, quote, in cages. The kids were safer in cages. Um, and, uh, you know, this is about the story that emerged uh, over the weekend we talked about, or, you know, about the, uh, by Hannah Dreyer of the New York Times. Again, very good journalism by the New York Times this weekend, or, you know, in the last couple of days with Hannah Dreyer's piece and Jim Tanker, Jim Tankersley's piece about the Commerce Department. Uh, about the uh, 200 some odd thousand uh, miners uh, who have somehow emer- sort of gone into the uh, American public and uh, and who are um, becoming a kind of um, illegal workforce uh, all over the place. Yeah, a shadow, a shadow uh, child labor force. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. the the you know, and by the way, not only a child labor force, you know, in terms of like what we should be thinking about how t- young people should be working, but of course they shouldn't be working. They are they are uh, undocumented aliens in in inside the United States who have not yet been. There aren't hearings. They haven't been granted asylum. It's nothing like that exactly, and they, you know, there. It's a lot of them are working eight-hour shifts after school or dropping out of school to work these shifts. But the point here, so that we talked about that. So let's talk about what's changed over the last twenty-four hours, maybe. 
Well, is, I don't know. We haven't talked about it on the podcast. Oh, we haven't? I'm sorry. No, no we, we just talked oh. about it among ourselves. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. apologize. I'm oh, no, that's right. Offline, so, as they say, we talked. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So, no, I mean, uh, uh, briefly, uh, when when Joe Biden was running for president, uh, he made a lot of noise about um, not detaining unaccompanied minors at the border, quote, you know, in cages. Uh, and he had uh, spoken to lawmakers during the campaign, pledging that he would he would get the kids out of cages in his campaign statement. He had uh, he had a, a, a whole plan about how he would move them uh, safely, uh, you know, into integrate them into into the U.S., uh, looking out for their for their best interest while keeping our values intact and and all that. Um, and when he got elected, he did, in fact, um, work vigorously uh, to to start to get the unaccompanied minors um, out of these um, uh, health and human services facilities on the border. Uh, the White House was constantly putting pressure on uh, HHS, but particularly Susan Rice, um, leaning on them to expedite uh, the process that would get these kids out of there. Uh, so HHS uh, curbed all these protections uh, that were had been in place in order to 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 get the kids uh, out of the detention facilities, um, including background checks on uh, their uh, supposed sponsors in the U.S. So they started shuffling uh, all these kids out of the d- detention centers as more and more were coming through. And then they created this shadow child labor force where kids are as john says uh working in factories uh kids as young as 13 and 14 in factories uh roofing jobs uh full time uh they're they're dropping out of school um and a lot of this has to do with the supposed sponsors who are actually just smugglers uh and then uh force the kids into labor to pay off uh, this the the supposed it's literally like here. sharecropping, right? I mean, if yeah. people remember the system of sharecropping, so you you basically went into as a sharecropper, you 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 tended land on somebody else's property, and you were advanced money to produce crops or whatever, uh, and and you never were out of debt to the landowner and so you were essentially in a kind of system of 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 lifelong penury because you you started out advanced money and then you basically made a subsistence wage and never got out of it or the famous company store at coal mines where where the the company owned the store provided credit for coal miners to buy goods at like inflated prices and then you could never leave the coal mine because you were always behind on your payments. That's the 60 I owe my soul to the company store. You have these smugglers who say, okay, well, it cost me $4,000 to get you in here. You have to pay me $4,000 before I'll let you go or I won't, or, you know, I guess the threat is that they'll hurt you or they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll or turn you, you in your family or right. turn you right. in. And, and where are you going to, where is it? Where is somebody working a minimum wage job and going to accumulate four four thousand dollars? Who is you know fourteen years old? Uh, it's horrifying and it's apparently like pretty systematic. Yeah, I mean yeah. the uh, the parallel is uh, I think with indentured servitude, right? Which brought right. many many immigrants to America over the centuries um, because the employer fronts uh, your travel costs and you have to pay them back. But as you say, John, you end up never really paying them back. 
Um, this was an amazing piece of journalism. Uh, and, you know, usually I wouldn't have read it, Abe, because uh, I stay away from stories that are over a thousand words long, especially when they're clearly packaged as Pulitzer bait, which um, this story is. Um, but you forced me to read it. And I have to say, um, I recommend it to everyone. It was a, it's a brilliant piece of journalism. Um, and I have a few, I have a few thoughts. One is there's a lot of valorization of manufacturing work going on in America today, but anyone who valorizes manufacturing, um, it's not the 1950s, 1960s picture of the burly man in the Ford factory. We have to understand that. A lot of these factories are heavily automated, especially the ones that are producing things like American automotive vehicles. When you say manufacturing today, I want you to read this story about the migrant children. Manufacturing is staying in a Cheetos plant on the night shift and having the dust from the, this is a detail in the story. From the flaming hot Cheetos. The flaming hot Cheetos, the dust getting to you so you could you can't breathe. Uh, I will never burning your lungs. I don't like Cheetos. Uh, uh, you know, there are kids, that, but I don't want my kids to eat Cheetos. I will never look at Cheetos in the same way. And there are several companies mentioned in the story, including, of course, progressive heroes, Ben and Jerry, right, whose dairy suppliers apparently are employing these migrant children uh, that I will not look at in the same way. Uh, the second point is uh, you mentioned Susan Rice. I have a rule of thumb. If something bad happens in the world, Susan Rice is probably involved. Okay? That's my that's my general view of what the happens in the news. And uh, here too, we have her pressuring Javier Becerra, our secretary of HHS to say get the children out of the camps, get the children out of the camps, and then Javier Becerra actually uh, forcing the resignation of some of his deputies because they're not moving the children out of the camps uh fast enough. The, the the other point I wanted to make was we talk about Javier yeah. Becerra. Let's because yeah. uh, Christine, there is there is this video that the New York Times got of Javier Becerra talking about how this system of releasing these kids, you know, into the you know, in, in getting them out of the uh, out of the facilities and into the you know into the American mainland. Um, it was had, his goal was, or it had become so efficient. That like Henry Ford could have made a lot of money out of this. Now Javier Becerra has become a bugbear on the right. There's constant calls for his resignation because of the border crisis. Um, I don't really understand, and uh, there hasn't been a huge amount of follow up on this story yet, from what I can tell. I mean, I didn't see the nightly news last night, but it doesn't feel like everybody in the mainstream media is jumping on this story. Although we will talk about the White House response. Uh, in a minute, I, I don't understand how Javier Becerra can remain uh, oh, at yeah, the head he, he, at the yes. head of this agency after the revelation of this footage and these policies. I mean, first of all, the only reason that he would is negative polarization. That is, the Democrats wouldn't want to give Republicans the satisfaction. Becerra was head of the House uh, Democratic Caucus. Uh, in like the last during the second term of the Obama administration before he left to become attorney general of California, from which post he then became yeah, he's, uh, head he's, of HSS. He has been in over his head from the beginning in this particular cabinet post. And even 
friendly Democrats I know have pointed this out, uh, including people I know who have worked with or in HHS in its current guise. He does not really know what he's doing. He relies heavily on his deputies. The cavalier disregard for life with which he kind of in the Zoom call with with the you know other government workers, he he talked about this as I think evidence of that. I I don't think they're going to force him out at all. And I think, you know, the reason we're not seeing a lot of reaction to this yet is that they're trying to figure out what the narrative will be to respond okay, to this. So you remember Upton, well, Upton right. Sinclair, remember, wrote The Jungle and he said, I was aiming for America's heart and instead I hit its stomach because people were absolutely disgusted by what was going on in the meatpacking industry, mainly because yeah. it was going to make them all sick. He was a socialist. He wanted them to be, be like appalled by the labor conditions. This might be an example where the, that's reversed. People are actually, I mean, I, I agree with Matt, like it was, it was heart heart wrenching to read the story about what's happening to these kids and they keep coming this is not this is an ongoing problem but the democrats have gotten themselves backed into a corner with regard to the border and they have to come up with a story that lets them continue to continue to talk in the language of we're not like the republicans who want to prevent immigration but also deal with these issues because they are not going to stop can i just pick up on what uh, christine said there at the end um, about they keep coming because that was the other aspect of the story i wanted to mention the children want to work that that adds a whole level of moral complexity to this because as as dreyer communicates in this piece the remittances that the children send back in this case many of them are from guatemala sustain the the economy in the rural towns uh where whence they're from so you have this very complicated situation here and i mentioned earlier oh you know the um the the employers or the 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 people who front them the cost of travel may turn them in in truth she also points out these kids here are are legal because since they're not mexican right. they are authorized to stay as long as they have a sponsor so they they are here and they're working these jobs in order to to uh help their families at home it gives you uh, a, a insight into the dynamics at work in the migration crisis that's happening on our southern border here, which is there are jobs that they that these children are willing to do, right, uh, at below cost, at great risk to themselves, in order to keep their family um, functioning in the impoverished communities where they're from. Right. And, you know, this is an important point about the cultural differences between the United States and elsewhere that, that are growing um, over over time. Um, that was always true. All American patterns of immigration into America involve young people who come here to work, to help their families back home, or to bring their families over, or whatever. This is the Irish, this is the Italians, this is the Jews, this is everybody, the Mexicans from, you know, from the 20s onward. They didn't come here to go to high school. They weren't, they're not going to go to high school in Guatemala either. Like they didn't come here to go to high school. They didn't come here. They came here for a better life in some sense, but they come here out of dire economic necessity. We look at them and we see them as kids like our kids. And we don't want them in factories and we don't want them doing a, a lot of this stuff. And some of those stories that Hannah Dreyer tells, particularly the, the you know this kind of industrial industrial dust story about the cheeto factory is chilling in the weird parallels with you know 
black lung or something like that. Though I'm obviously it's not well, Cheeto lung. We'll have Cheeto to, lung <laughs> will yeah. go down in the but, annals of history. Right. But um, we have got we have backed ourselves into a corner about immigration and work because we're telling lies to ourselves or liberals are telling lies to ourselves about why these kids are coming. They're lying. They're like, they, they, what they want is to them to come in and then they go and they live in families and they go to school and they, they, they live like our, they are not here. They grow up that. to vote Democrat. They didn't walk <laughs> from Guatemala to the United States and then submit themselves to this, you know, arrest and procedure. They weren't walking here so they could go to the mall on Saturday. Now that's heartbreaking, but it's also part of what's on what the United States has on offer to other countries that is not interruptible. And this is why Republicans as well as Democrats live in a fantasy world when it comes to immigration. Right. Because Republicans want to stop this entirely, which is, by the way, crazy and particularly crazy in relation to what we were talking about in the first part of the show, which is you want to incept a domestic semiconductor industry. One of the first things you're going to have to do if you're really serious about it is lower immigration restrictions from certain parts of the world so you can import workers from there to come here to work in these factories in part to train Americans to do what they do. And right now, you know, if the Trump administration had had its way, there, there, we wouldn't have anybody coming in from Taiwan or anybody coming in from South Korea or anything like that. You bring them here, you pay them twice what they make there, and you you use them as a as a seed force because they know how to do it. So the the immigration stuff is very complicated, and everybody lives in a fantasy world about it. And I mean, that's part, as I say, as you say, part of the heartbreak. Christine, I'm sorry. I keep stepping on you. Okay. I'm not stepping on you. Okay. So uh, uh, the White House yesterday announced, what did they announce on this exactly? Oh, they're going to crack down. They're cracking down on the policy that they created. They're cracking down the situation they literally created by themselves well, yeah, they're cracking down on the employers. They're not cracking down on government. That's, yeah. you know, it's never government. It's the employers. Right. And what well, they should, obviously, right. if, 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 if there are, if there are, you know, if there are kids working uh, under, under, you know. But can I, I will jump in on this. Look, yeah. the, the progressive, the, the 20th century progressive era movement, one of the things it did, um, working conditions for people was something that did improve. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a, the harsh critic of some of the things that the progressive era produced, but the idea that it's interesting to contrast um, that era's progressives with our current progressives and our current progressives are largely shaping a lot of our border policy, including shaping what the Biden administration has thus far done with regard to the border. And it really is as if they have never, I very few of the people who are arguing about this have ever worked uh, a menial job manual labor of any sort. Very few have probably worked an hourly. Some of them probably have never worked an hourly job. I would guess Susan Rice has never set foot in a factory where she actually had to pick up something and make it or do, or watch people who make it or talk to people who make it. So there's a kind of elite policy formation, an elite idea of what 
the solutions will look like that are from 30,000 feet with very little experience on the ground of how what workers want. Um, and as we said earlier, why these kids are coming and how they're supporting their families. So the the idea that there's going to be some sort of crackdown on the people who are profiting from this labor without dealing with the core issue about how do you have a civilized uh, immigration system that takes care of vulnerable people, particularly children. They have no language to say that. They have no experience of doing that. They just simply don't. But, they are an elite, well-educated uh, group of people who just want to tell businesses not to do this rather than dealing with the crisis itself. Part of the part of the administration response was that, yeah, they're going to crack down on the employers, um, but they're going to review uh, HHS policies and see if they, you know, maybe, maybe they'll make some changes. Um, I also want to, Matt made the point that, uh, there is a lot of, on both sides, valorization of, uh, you know, hard factory work. And some of that is a, is a, a good and moral and proper correction really to elite disgust with, the working class. I mean, uh, over over many many decades, and this was very big in the sixties and seventies, and the the treatment of you know solid ethnic you know veterans of World War II and Korea and 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 Vietnam and being considered racist, horrible monsters because they didn't want their you know their kids bust an, an hour right. away to a different. They rejected school. the counterculture. They were exactly right. Okay. Well, and the Democrats so, are now an elite party, not a party right. of the working class. But they are not the party of the but working I class. I think this correction, uh, and then there's a lot of this on the, you know, th this is a, the forgotten Trump people are all people who came from families that had earned their living or made made their way after World War II working in the factories of the Midwest that got progressively shut down over the last 20 years of the 20th century. And they've therefore they don't have they're left mired in these communities where they don't have uh, they don't have work and they have there's a lot of uh, opioids and and all of that and so if we could get them back if we could get these places back to where they were good solid work you know and good jobs with good benefits and all of that this would be really wonderful but i do think that there is this sentimentality about it misses the fact that this is hard, a lot of this, a lot better because of what Christine said about the progressives. This is hard, unpleasant, dangerous. ugly labor. It's, it can be yeah. dangerous, but even if it's not dangerous because security protocols are in place, it's physical, it's physically taxing, it's exhausting. And, you know, uh, and it is uh, wearing. Uh, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of uh, highly repetitive uh, you know, it is. It One is, of the children was slicing the chicken nuggets for you know yeah. for ten hours. Yeah, imagine. I mean, yeah. Know. So, in some sense, it's a remarkable act for people like us who you know don't work with our hands. You think about you know what these what it's like to work there, but you know, sentimentalizing it as a you know, as as the future of America, what we really need is to get a lot more people into these factories to do things that robots are now doing or on the verge of doing, because it's so much better for them. Is it's in its own way an act of complete condescension? Like this is not; these are not jobs that people 
didn't want to get out of if they could or wanted their kids not to have to do after them. And I mean, it's worth saying that because, because we we're, we're, we're in, we're in danger of romanticizing things that we moved past in a good way. And that we look at other countries that do it the way we did it a century ago and are horrified by by how they treat their workforce. Right. This is these jobs are the first step in an American dream, right? The old line that takes three yeah. generations to make a career. This is the first generation. Right. Right. Um, I want to say one thing about the administration response. I read the New York Times release describing how the administration is going to crack down. Uh, never did they say that they're going to hire more inspectors or investigators at the Department of Labor. Now, um, meanwhile, they've spent a lot of money, billions of dollars to expand the IRS so that they can, the IRS can go after tax, you know, so-called tax cheats, right? Um, and recoup uh, income that the IRS believes is being hidden from them. But one of the lessons of Dreyer's original story is the Department of Labor does not have the capacity to actually investigate all of the tips they're getting from some of the migrant workers, some from some of the youth workers. So unless you're willing to say, okay, we're going to greatly expand the resources and staff at the Department of Labor to go into all the nooks and crannies and investigate every one of these stories, you're not going to get anywhere. So this is just vaporware that the administration is putting out. And by the way, I'm not actually sure that how that would what that would do to industry, but you know, I mean, <laughs> with the economic effects of such a um, intrusive apparatus, um, may not uh, may lead to unintended consequences that that uh, right. certainly the migrants wouldn't like, and progressives might not like mm -hmm. either. No, I, mean, I think that. Yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> part part of the point here is that um, immigration policy is so complicated that when you reduce it to a sort of hand wave to get rid of a Trump. Uh, uh, offense, you know, and and just uh, just sort of, you know, enact this quick reversal, you're going to have this cascade of problems because you're not taking into effect everything, uh, taking into account everything we're talking about here. Look, look, the thing that I mentioned, which is and, and that Matt mentioned, which is that uh, these kids are coming here to work. Um, the 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 gut response uh, of 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 corporations or whatever in the United States in response to the story is going to be not to hire them like you know this is the end of hiring kids like this now you may look at that and say that's great you know because they shouldn't be doing this they should be going to school they should be whatever um, but uh, is that really you know, yes, it would be better if they were like at the gap after school in a mall folding sweaters. Um, but, you know, maybe they can't get those jobs. I don't know. It's yeah. As you say, it's fiendishly complicated. There are all kinds of unintended consequences. But if you have 250,000 kids inside the United States who are now a competitive workforce, how on earth you could add 10,000 Department of Labor investigators and not get to the bottom of the problems. Like this is this we're on a scale here that it's, is not 250,000 in the in the past 2 years. Right. And yeah. and and more And then come. HHS loses track of right. of those of, are the ones we know about. 
Right. Yeah. So I'm just saying there's no way that you can like go case by case with, you know, reports to a hotline if there are 20,000 reports to a hotline. Like that's not we're we're out of scale here and and we're out of scale and this is a problem that as a says in his blog post, a remarkable blog post, uh was created by a manufactured and ginned up hysteria about how human beings were being treated like animals put in cages when they were being put in in detention facilities in a very hot area in the United States to provide ventilation so they weren't in closed rooms in the summer in the south of Texas. And this was a policy incepted by the Obama administration. And all the pictures that we saw of the kids in cages were pictures taken during the Obama administration. And this somehow became this Trump Nazi concentration camp analogy. And the shamelessness and the shamefulness of that just rankles today with this story about what happens when you say, oh, we can't do that, Bob. We can't possibly do that. So let's ship them off to northern Michigan so they can inhale, you know, flaming hot Cheeto dust for 10 hours a day. That's really what we want as a society. Um, Okay, last point, and then we should go. Uh, We talked yesterday about the, um, you know, we spent a lot of time on the uh, on the lab leak. Uh, We didn't even get, by the way, to the to the fact that um, all all that is now almost unassailable that masking. as part of the COVID, you know, the revisions uh, that I, mean, I guess we we mentioned, but that, you know, masking basically is nonsense um, and that we now have like massive data to suggest that masking is nonsense and that all the all the studies that said that it wasn't were were were, were foolish and stupid, um, uh, which led me yesterday to refuse to to stand outside when my son was at a dentist appointment because the dental office insisted that I wear a mask and I said, I'm sorry, I just can't do this anymore. I did I, that know. too at an eye appointment. Yep. I mean, I felt really, Resist. I felt once I did it, <laughs> I called Abe actually. And I was like, am I an idiot? Like, what am I doing? Like all I have to do is just, but I thought after yesterday's podcast, it would be just like hypocritical or cowardly of me not to do what I did. So, so I did it, but I wanted, that's not why I brought this up. We need to talk about how the white house and the mainstream media are responding to the story that the energy department uh, you know, changed its conclusion and said, with a granted a low level of confidence that the lab leak, that the that COVID originated from a lab leak uh, in in Wuhan, and it's kind of amazing because both the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, published follow on pieces with deep skepticism, I would say, in their tone about how, well, other agencies, the intelligence agencies aren't saying, aren't changing their tune. It's only, it's only the energy department and the, and, and the FBI uh, that are saying this. Then of course, there's a very great piece by, by, by Jim Garrity about the division at the energy department that has come to this uh, conclusion, which apparently is one of these like, uh, remarkable small task force things inside the government that does things nobody really knows about. It's got got a name out of a, I don't know, out of a what what kind of not like a like a Le Carre novel. It's a Z division, you know, um, that uh, was crunching things and got new evidence in. But uh, so they're like, mm, 
I don't know. We'll never really know. You know, there'll never really be a way of knowing what what this where this was. And blah, 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 blah. and then and Matt, you were talking about we want to talk about the White House response. Yeah, well, it came up during yesterday's uh, press briefing and uh, John Kirby, uh, who's tasked to kind of answer the important national security questions uh, during the press briefing, um, really had the line that he said, quote, you know, um, there is no consensus. There's no consensus across the government. I love this as kind of an allusion to Ted Kennedy. I guess he goes, the work continues. The dream the dream will never die that we'll get to the answer. But he didn't say that <laughs> part. Uh, I'm not going to get ahead, he did say, to get get ahead of conclusions that haven't been arrived at yet. Uh, so, And he said it's a whole of government effort, but there's no consensus. And the truth is, they don't want to know the answer. The answer is it came from the lab. And if they acknowledge that it came from the lab then they will be forced to do something and they don't want to do anything. And that's the, that's the case. They are not, they do not want to face the reality that the Chinese communist party was responsible for this catastrophe that affected the world uh, in 2020 and 2021. And because to do that would, would require an actual whole of government response to face down this threat. And and they're not they're not willing to do that. And so it it makes it makes the Neil Ferguson argument you mentioned in the spot for the dancing or podcast kind of kind of persuasive when you're feeling like, uh, you know, crushingly morose. I want to point out one more thing uh, uh, before we go uh, from uh, this is from John John Ellis's invaluable news items uh, newsletter where he he collates fascinating material from all across the uh all across the internet um and this is where it's not just our response that's going to matter here okay total deaths in japan this is according to asia.nikkei.com jumped nearly nine percent in 2022 from the previous year a record 1.58 million people including foreigners living in japan and japanese citizens living abroad died last year the pace of the rise in deaths, deaths jumped from 4.9%, which was already crazily high, to 8.9%. The number of deaths was nearly double that of births. This is because of COVID in Japan, which, of course, was kind of did it was a modified version of what New Zealand did. Like it was very hard to get into Japan for a year. So For two years, really. So Japan years. has seen a wild increase in the death toll. If the lab leak hypothesis is strengthened over time, we're not the only country in the world that is going to want to is, is going to have a public and a political system that is going to say. The Chinese just killed a lot of us and a lot of our old people in one fell swoop. What are you going to do about it? And this story is nowhere near over. And and the more evidence that is marshaled for the lab leak hypothesis, which will only be more evidence, even if it's circumstantial, because there is no way to collect evidence on the other argument, right? Which is that it was some kind of animal to human jump. There is no way to make that evidentiary case stronger because it's simply a theory 
it's like a theory that has no there's no patient zero and they, well, and also they, in the past they've been able to make the the connection about the animal to human transmission much more clearly much right. earlier right right and they've exactly. never been able to do that yeah. we haven't where's the pangolin yeah who's the pangolin responsible for this yeah bring him out we've never seen him yeah exactly. wither the pangolin right. i like yeah. bring out the pangolin <laughs> yeah. yeah but look my my persistent argument on this podcast for since we started and in the in the magazine since 2009 2010 is that world crises and and events uh lead uh, of the sort that covid is lead to long-term systemic change you just don't know what it is and it doesn't follow a straight line that's why i keep saying trump was the american response to the financial meltdown in ways that people don't entirely understand if you had said the way that this, the america is going to end up responding to 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 the financial meltdown was to elect donald trump in 2009 everybody would have thought you were a madman and i have no idea how the COVID, how the response to covid after the response turns to all the mitigation stuff that we did that was so stupid and bad and morally harmful and how we deal with that ourselves Abe's point that, you know, we, this is the danger that we're going to turn, or Matt's, I'm sorry, Matt's point yesterday that we're going to turn in on ourselves and we should be focusing outward. But any hope that people have that there is not going to be a long-term systemic response by the planet Earth and by the people of the planet Earth to the unleashing of this pandemic on them from this totalitarian system that lied and cheated and 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 prevaricated and didn't let the world know in sufficient time that actual mitigation measures could be taken to uh interrupt it um i it's I, coming I, I i must introduce a, a quote here from cormac mccarthy uh because ever since i read it 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 uh it has stayed with me um particularly under under circumstances like these in his book the crossing one character says the wicked know that if the ill they do be of sufficient horror that men will not speak against it that men have just enough stomach for small evils and only these will they oppose there is something of that in not wanting to know the the origins of covid because you would have to do something about it it is sort of too big to begin to deal with right and yet somehow it will be dealt with god knows how and it probably in a terrible way that will not right. be helpful but but it will it will happen anyway we, we've run on way too long and uh, we gotta go so we will be back tomorrow for matt christine and abe i'm john Hogwarts. keep the candle burning